0: good evening welcome to the monroe church of christ midweek bible study Derek glover here with you as always and we're glad you could join us we're we're going a little later than normal for the live study but if you're watching this on any other day and any other time that won't really matter to you but uh, we are continuing our study and how we got the bible and examining really the history because it's a fascinating history of how our scripture got from its writing, its original authorship, all the way into our hands today. And we've done a lot of heavy lifting uh, in the early weeks of this study, the first six, seven, eight weeks, uh, regarding how language works and how authorship works and how the things that we consider pretty common and that we understand from our Bible, um, how they got into the current form they are, because they didn't always start that way. Uh, these writings were assembled and put together and translated, and we've traced the history of that and the language and the politics and all of the intrigue to uh, into now uh, more modern times. We're going through the Middle Ages, really. And we talked last week about the rise of Catholicism, the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, and how powerful they became and eventually how corrupt they became. And we're not slamming the Catholic Church in talking about this this history. We're simply acknowledging some facts about history this is not an attack on a particular faith tradition it is meant simply to understand and educate ourselves on the journey that our holy scriptures took during this time because as they come into new languages and they're they're translated and they're put together we've now reached a time where there is a fairly uh, solidified agreed upon uh, order to these books uh, the content of these books And we have a unified language of the books, which is Latin, the Vulgate, but we don't have it widely available. And we have the controlling power of that scripture, a fairly corrupt institution. Now, as we get into the 11, 12, 1300s AD, and we last week met uh, a man named Wycliffe and John Wycliffe Uh, began having some ideas and some thoughts about the church and about its current state. And he began writing and he began uh, trying to copy down and get this scripture into the hands of the people to be able to read it. He wrote a lot about freedom. He wrote a lot about liberty. He wrote a lot about some things that influenced future reformers, even future nations like our own. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Wycliffe was... um, he, he died, and, um, but his writings lived on. And what I want you to see, because these stories we're going to get into here are, are, like I said, stories of intrigue. Um, they're, they're adventure stories. They're spy stories. Uh, There's some really cool uh, narratives that take place in this history. But what I want you to see through this is a couple of things. Number one, uh, English speakers don't have a complete Bible they can read. So Northern Europe is without scripture that they themselves can read. In fact, much of the world is without a complete portion of scripture that they can read in a common language. Okay, so that's the first thing I want you to think about. And ask yourself the question, which we sort of posed last week, which is, what does that mean for salvation? Is the Bible something that we have to have all of it and understand it perfectly in order to be saved. If that's the case, we're going to have some trouble dealing with these centuries in which it wasn't available. We talked last week about walking by the light that we have. That is not in any way to diminish the authority of Scripture. I'm thankful I live in a time where I can read the Scripture for myself and understand it, but I also want to understand the place that Scripture has in my life. Uh, and and I don't believe that history uh, and understanding God's nature would indicate to us or make us believe or think that we couldn't understand um, understand who God is and and what He's teaching us uh, without all of it. So uh, we have to consider that question. The second question I want you, or the second thing I want you to see and notice as we're going through this, is to understand. Um, how God is working in different parts of history. And some of these things are happening simultaneously as God works his will and continues to uh, get the Bible into the hands of people, get the scripture, get the message, get the direction. And we believe that scripture points us to Jesus and and it's that which saves us, uh, Jesus that is. So we want to consider those things. As we go through this history, think about that. What does it mean that they didn't have the Bible What does that mean for their soul and salvation? What does that tell you about what the Bible is? And secondly, I just want you to look on in awe of how God works, how he moves amongst the people and how he moves amongst these important people in this history to accomplish what he wishes to accomplish. So last week we ended the discussion of John Wycliffe and began a discussion of a man named John Huss. Hus uh, lived in the time after Wycliffe. He did not know Wycliffe. Uh, He was born in 1369 in Bohemia, which is a region of what is now the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, uh, as it would have been known at at a different time in history. But he uh, grew up there. Again, did not know anything about Wycliffe. Uh, He was uh, actually a singer in Prague uh, and then studied to become a priest. So he studies to become a priest and um and earns a master's degree in 1396 and is ordained four years later in the roman catholic church and he begins immediately preaching for reform why does someone like john huss in the middle of bohemia in prague begin preaching for reform uh early in his career well he had found the notes of the students of john Wycliffe. remember he was at oxford He had found the notes that had been carried forth of Wycliffe's teachings on reform and he had begun teaching them himself. He found these notes 30 years earlier and began teaching them and distributing the writings of John Wycliffe. And he was convinced that it was time to begin the reform of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, word got around to Pope Innocent VII and he uh, directed an archbishop in 1405 to go after Huss. And to put an end to this heresy and to end his teaching and his distribution of Wycliffe's work. Uh, around this time, a document from Oxford made its way to the hands of John Huss uh, that praised Wycliffe and he read it before the congregation, his congregation, uh, and uh, in doing so was declared by Pope Gregory to be a heretic. You'll notice that there was Pope Innocent and then there was Pope Gregory. Um, why two popes? Well, there were many popes, and it's a really fascinating time in history for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. But Pope Gregory uh, declared him a heretic. And being declared a heretic, uh, if you've ever heard um, in, in Muslim cultures, in cultures and in countries that are Islamic, uh, you, they will declare a fatwa against someone. This is a death sentence. This is permission to have this person killed. Uh, heresy in the Catholic Church was very much the same way. And so uh, John Huss was declared a heretic by Pope Gregory. And, um, and, and the Pope and his people, his armies, um, his agents, they went after King Wenceslaus, uh, who was the king of this, this region at the time. And King Wenceslaus, Wenceslaus, excuse me, uh, buckled to that pressure. And he ordered that uh, Huss's work be taken and destroyed and put an end to. But a very interesting thing happened to the papacy in the early 1400s. It was in 1408 when Gregory XII was the pope. Uh, he was the pope in Rome. But about 50% or half of the Roman Catholic Church decided they didn't want Gregory as their pope, and uh, Benedict 13th was appointed as pope. So now we have two popes. So there's a civil war going on in the Catholic Church at this time. Well, Pope Benedict 13th. With about 50% of the support and the armies uh, of the Catholic Church moved to France, uh, Avignon. King Wenceslas, Wenceslas, I'm going to get it right. King Wenceslaus saw political opportunity. Uh, to understand his political opportunism, you have to understand uh, the political and religious climate. When Rome fell, which it did, um, you had the, the, the growth and the, the, the coming up of the Roman Catholic Church alongside the Roman Empire as it was beginning its long and arduous descent into destruction. So when the Roman, uh, the, the Roman Empire fell, what remained was the Roman Catholic Church. And that political religious entity became known as the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, King Wenceslaus looked at the situation and he thought, uh, well, it would be really nice to have the job as emperor over the Holy Roman Empire. So he decided to throw his support and his weight behind, uh, Pope Benedict, who was in France, and, and in order to gain his favor, that he might become the emperor of, of the Holy Roman Empire. So, um, this was the, the secular and religious authority of the time was the Holy Roman Empire. So he goes to Benedict and pledges his, his allegiance to him. In response to that, basically all of the University of Prague uh, abandoned uh, the king. So the faculty and staff, large portions of it, left uh, in in protest. And what happened was that John Huss remained in Prague, and he remained as the rector of the university and the spiritual advisor of the university and the senior member of that faculty. And he had the freedom and the opportunity to teach from that platform about Wycliffe and about his teachings. Also important to note here, very little of what Huss did was original. He was mainly someone who took the writings of John Wycliffe and continued to to, to help them to gain traction and to be heard by larger and larger numbers of people over his time. So while he wasn't uh, much for originality, he certainly had a mighty hand in continuing the legacy of John Wycliffe's call for reform. So the Council of Pisa met uh, to determine which of these two popes was the pope. So the the, the Council of Pisa comes together and they're gonna determine who the pope is. Well, they couldn't decide, so they appointed a third pope, uh, sometimes called an antipope. That was Alexander V. And he issued a papal order, what they call a papal bull, a papal order that banned the teachings of Wycliffe and this was under penalty of death that all of, their, all of his writings were to be confiscated, destroyed, and those who possessed them would be required to recant, disavow themselves of what they said, or face death. And they also banned free preaching. Now, let me explain what that is, because that's a little bit odd for us. Uh, you, you could not preach without a license, uh, you had to be ordained by the Roman Catholic Church. In some denominations, this is still required. In the churches of Christ and in many of, I would call more modern community churches, Bible churches, uh, independent churches, which are becoming more and more prevalent, uh, you, you don't have to have, they don't have, You know, there's no denominational power behind them. So there is no ordination, there is no requirement. Uh, the ability for anyone to preach the gospel or to preach scripture, um, was not always available Uh, you had to have the proper credentialing from your church and in this case the roman catholic church and so free preaching was banned anyone caught preaching without a license would face punishment in 1411 pope alexander v died john the 23rd is appointed to take his place again they were both referred to as anti-popes and john the 23rd launched a crusade against pope gregory in rome remember you have benedict in france you have gregory in rome and now you have uh john the 23rd and he launches this crusade in order to fund his crusade he ordered his priests to almost like a sales force to begin selling indulgences what this is are prepaid sins okay Uh, you can pay for a license to commit sin that you'll be forgiven for. So you're prepaying for forgiveness. And, and this had already been a problem where if you had money and you had means and you could pay enough, you got access to the church. You got access to forgiveness from sin, declared innocent of what sins you committed by the church because you had the, the ability. And so indulgences were a prepayment plan for sin. And the, uh, the, the, the church began uh, taking part in this doing that uh, in order to fund a war essentially against Gregory in Rome this led to further corruption and it gets pretty dirty It gets pretty uh, corrupt the, the Roman Catholic Church be- had begun and continued to head down a path of, of abject corruption in their time so Hus's followers took this order this papal bull that was issued um, by uh, uh, that was issued uh, by uh, Alexander V, excuse me, uh, and they they took it and burned it in public. And said we're not going to follow it. Now that's a, an act of treason, if you will. Uh, so they burn the papal order, and uh, as a result, three of the people who were part of this little mob were actually publicly executed. They were beheaded. And they are some of the first martyrs of the Protestant Reformation, which is beginning to take shape, although it's going to be another hundred years until Martin Luther, until until he comes into the picture, at least a hundred years. In the aftermath of this, King Wenceslaus supported the people in their rejection of this order. Now, he did this in order to build support for his rule. Again, he still has aspirations for being a Holy Roman Emperor, and if he gets the people on his side, he believes that he can achieve that. So the people of Bohemia in this time are circulating a lot of writings from Wycliffe and from Huss. And Huss is basically just rehashing Wycliffe's writings. And a lot of what they're talking about are some of the very beginnings of the philosophies that would lead to Western democracy uh, or Western philosophy uh, in the Scottish Enlightenment and things like that. We're talking about separation of church and state that the church should not have the power that the state has and they need to stay out of politics, uh, the freedom of people to govern themselves. These ideas that are at the heart of what we understand uh, in our nation and in our country and in Western democracies, they began here with Hus and with Wycliffe and in Bohemia, in, in Czechoslovakia, and they taught these things. Essentially, the, the, the birth of our Bill of Rights has its origins here. So the Pope responded to this with an order against Prague and this was a death sentence to the city because what he ordered was no one under threat of excommunication and punishment, no one is to do business with this city, don't bring food in, don't bring supplies in, no trading of goods and services, essentially a siege over the city in a political sense and that would have been detrimental to the city. In an effort to save the city, Huss decided he had to leave. And in leaving, he preached a final sermon. And in that sermon, it's recorded that he said that all Christians should accept Jesus as the head of the church, not a man. And it's probably the first time in almost 1,100 years that that idea had been preached. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So Huss is on the run. And during this time, he is uh, writing, and he's distributing everything he can. He's writing for reform. He's giving it to people to carry out and to get out to to more people, to spread. Some of the people who desired his writings the most and sought them out were actually priests. Because remember, priests didn't really know anything about the scripture. Uh, Many people bought their way into the priesthood. And so the priests themselves were by no means scholars or theologians, and they would read Huss's writings and Wycliffe's writings, and some of them would end up uh, resigning their priesthood, leaving Catholicism. And much of what Huss was doing was, of course, rewriting Wycliffe. Um, And then, politically, things take a turn. Uh, They take a turn when Wenceslaus uh, dies and his brother Sigismund becomes king. Sigismund shared his brother's desire to be Holy Roman Emperor. And so uh, he, he's definitely got some political opportunism about him, and he's wanting to try and elevate himself and gain favor with the church so that he can do so. So he calls a council together, and he invites John Hus to be a part of this council where they will discuss and debate and share these ideas. And he promises Hus that he will protect him. That he will grant him safety so huss comes uh, and this is in 1414 and he takes part in this council in the sharing of ideas but eventually the church uh, and its agents take john huss and they throw him into a dungeon now Sigismund objects to this initially because uh, he says i promised him safety i made a promise to him and i have to keep my promise You're forcing me to break my promise, and the church said, no, we know you made a promise, but don't worry about that. Don't worry about that, because on the basis of your mental reservation, you're forgiven. See, this was also a little, uh, a part of Catholic doctrine. Um, It's largely been removed from Catholic doctrine as of the mid-20th century, Uh, but it was a part of Catholic doctrine, and that is, you could make a promise, or you could tell a lie, and you could break that promise, uh, and, it, and, and you could say that you had mental reservation. In other words, you, uh, you, you said something that wasn't true because you had mental reservation, or you made a promise and you broke it because you didn't really believe in the promise you were making. So in other words, you could just do whatever you wanted and claim mental reservation. So they excuse the breaking of his promise and tell him that he doesn't need to worry about keeping his promise because of this doctrine of mental reservation. Seventy-three days, that's how long Huss was left, separated from his people and essentially tortured uh, in the dungeon. Seventy-three days he spent um, in suffering. And then he was put on trial, in a sham of a trial, where he was asked to recant everything that he taught. He was asked to deny the teachings of Wycliffe. He was given opportunity, and he said, I will not deny anything. I will not take back anything. I will not apologize. I will not recant unless it can be shown to me that that which I have taught is contrary to scripture. Uh, Much like many of us, John Huss wanted book chapter verse to show what he was saying was wrong. So in this sham trial, he was eventually found guilty, and Huss was stripped naked in public he was beaten, he was tied to a post by his hands and by his neck in the middle of stacks of his writings that were then lit on fire. And John Huss was executed by being burned at the stake, burned alive. This action led to a revolt of the people. And ultimately, and, and at this point, they're referring to these followers as Hussites. Okay, the followers of John Huss um, and the followers of the teachings uh, and the legacy of John Wycliffe. Four Crusades. Now, we hear about the Crusades a lot, uh, the the battles between Christians and Muslims. But there were other Crusades that the church went on against other Christians. There were four separate Crusades, wars essentially, waged against Prague, against Bohemia, against the people, uh, the, the Hussites. And every one of them failed. The hussites were able to fight them off within a hundred years of the death of john huss 90 percent of the christians in prague were supporters of huss they were supporters of the legacy of Wycliffe. they were supporters of reform within a century of the work that john huss did he gave his life in in the belief that the people should have the word in the belief that these sacraments and these uh, religious symbols and these traditions should be given back to the people and that we should be able to take part in them. He fought against the corruption of institutionalized religion. He fought against the corruption of theocracy. And he fought for the legacy of John Wycliffe, of liberty and independence, and his work, continued that, that legacy to echo throughout centuries. Again, it's another hundred years before we get to Martin Luther, but the work of John Huss helped to influence what would come about in other parts of the world. One other important thing that's happening in this time. As Huss is writing, and uh, as uh, one, of, one of his students, uh, a man named John Purvey, uh, as he was writing, in all this time, because they're distributing so much, this is beginning the process of the standardization of the English language, standardizing English. Because English, there was no set English language at this point, uh, and th- you couldn't write something in one part of England and send it to another part of England and it'd be able to be read. So the standardization of the language is taking place from the time of Wycliffe on down through Chaucer and others, they are standardizing words and language and letters and grammar. And now for the first time, the people are able to read and write in a common language. And this created an intense hunger for things to read. And what did they have to read? The writings of John Wycliffe, the writings of John Huss, the writings of those influenced by them. And some very important things historically and spiritually are all going to start to come together because we're going to talk next time about a gentleman in Germany who was experimenting with a new way to produce printed material. And he is one of the key people, he and some others who were contemporaries of his were key elements in making it possible for you and I to hold in our hands the scripture and the Bible. It's really fascinating, and I hope that you'll continue to join us on this journey as we look at how we got the Bible. We will see you next week, and we're going to talk about some fascinating people like uh, Gutenberg and a man named William Tyndall, and I hope you'll join me for that. Take care. We'll see you next time.